Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Pixel Sift. My name is Gianni. As usual, I'm joined by Mitch. <laughs> yep. And Scott. Hey, hey. It's said that good artists copy and great artists steal. We all love Mario. We're all gamers through and through. So it just kind of seemed right. Probably the big thing was no man's sky being really big. And it wasn't really a conscious decision to go, oh, we're going to try and make something that's going to capitalize on on that. This week, we spent some time talking to Sam Itzo, one of the developers on the DMCA takedown, receiving No Mario Sky, and video game and IP lawyer Cam Rogers, who hopefully will shed some light on what happens when your imitation is discovered. That interview a little bit later, but what else do we have on the show today, Scott? Uh, in light of recent lawsuits, uh, first topic, to, uh, one of our topics for today, we'll be looking at the latest controversy surrounding Steam review policy changes. Yeah, and we'll also take a look at why some games that are big in Asia don't quite make it to the Western front. That's right. We've got a brand new segment for you today. Well, not a brand new segment. It's an adaptation of the of the segment that Brian has been doing for us for the last uh, couple of weeks now. Uh, this week, we're going to be doing a update on the Play Up Perth, uh, which takes a showcase of local Western Australian developers and gets them to test their games. Uh, and Brian had a chance to speak to friend of the show and former guest uh, FTI's Kate Rains Goldie about what we can expect this month. Play Up Perth is a monthly event showcasing and playtesting the games made in WA. The next Play Up Perth is being hosted at the Perth Games Festival on the 1st of October, which is run by the Perth organization Let's Make Games. Joining me today on the line is Director of Games and Interactive at FTI, Dr. Kate Rains Goldie. Thanks for speaking with me, Kate. My pleasure. What is the Perth Games Festival? What can you tell us about it? So the Perth Games Festival has been running for about three years. I've been super happy to be involved with it. Let's Make Games does an amazing job. They have been working to support games in uh, Perth for a while now, and this is kind of like the culmination of their work running this amazing festival. We'll be there, play at Perth, uh, which is one of the events I run. It's actually just had its third birthday, which is awesome. Um, so we'll be there uh, with some, some games that are in development. So. Um, people go to the Perth Games Festival, we'll play games that are finished, and we're bringing games that are still being developed, and the developers want to get feedback from people. So it's a really kind of cool way to see the game development process and see how games evolve. What games are being featured at Play Up Perth? So we have two so far with a few more to be announced. Um, we have Oscar Britton's Desert Child, which is, um, as he describes, racing on hover bikes in the desert, because what else are you going to do? And it looks pretty cool. <laughs> so that's a, a, like a more um, conventional video game. And then we have... A tabletop game, which I played at a previous play at Perth, which is Darren Broad's Monte Carlo Millionaire. So it's basically like a card game mixed with gambling, but with not actual money. Pretty fun. Like if you're into poker, it kind of uses the poker mechanic, abstracted a bit. So it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool take on on kind of casino game. The Perth Games Festival is such an important gathering and focal point for the um, WA games industry. Um, and I think it, it really shows how vibrant our scene is and our industry is, um, but also just is a really great kind of public awareness thing to show how much interest there is in games. Um, because we actually don't get a lot of support um, from the state or federal government. I think the Perth Games Festival is an example of all of the talent that we have here that we really need to be supporting. We're creating Australian culture. Are there any other facets that people who, who aren't really involved in games, any other reasons that they kind of should be interested or should care? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, the other thing that's happening... Uh, 
I think people are kind of aware of it. Maybe they don't agree that it's going to be a thing, but VR and AR is, is like this massive thing that's going to happen. And I'm absolutely convinced that it's going to be a huge thing. Um, I used VR back in the 90s when it was crap. And yeah, you could tell nothing. That was definitely a fad. But anybody who puts on VR goggles now, um, we have people who kind of come to our events who are like, I'm not really convinced about games. You put those goggles on them and then they're like, okay, I get it. The games industry is $100 billion globally. It's bigger than Hollywood. So, you know, if you're, you need to be convinced that the games industry is something to pay attention to, regardless of AR, VR, I think that speaks to that directly. All right. Well, that is a lot to look forward to. Thank you so much, Kate. My pleasure to see everybody there. Perth Games Festival, you can see us there. We're actually doing a live episode for episode 50 of Pixel Sift. We're on at 11.30 on the Saturday at Perth Games Festival. Brag about it. <laughs> we'll see you there. Brag. Pixel Sift. <laughs> Pixel Sift. No, seriously, Pixel Sift. <laughs> no, seriously. Pixel Sift. So the mainstream media is now latching onto gaming at a breakneck speed, but what these shows fail to acknowledge is the might of the Central Asian markets and and development scenes such as China and Korea. There are some powerhouses over there, and I think we need to take notice now. 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 Right now we're taking notice. Right now we're going to do it. Yeah, it's one of these things that uh, we quite often don't talk about when talking about video games. We often think of uh, the American uh, video game industry, uh, places like Canada. Uh, We talk about Ubisoft Montreal. We talk about the Japanese scene. But there's a huge industry in places like China and Korea, like you mentioned, Mm -hmm. which are making huge amounts of games uh, for a, a local audience. And this is something that kind of doesn't get sort of spoken about in in our mainstream media and we kind of want to discuss why that is i think because their audiences are just big enough where they are that they really don't need to push out as of yet yeah they're just getting everyone there and that's enough yeah that's right and i think there's a styles of of games that that don't tend to get localized to to other regions because they really don't need to Mm -hmm. um they're for a you know central asian audience and that's the enough basically Uh, adding australia to that list probably you know would cost them more money than it would be worth. And then, like, it, it just seems like they're also pushing into, like, investing. It is like, and Tencent is a Chinese company. It acquired Finnish video game developer Supercell, and they are the Clash of Clans people. And they pretty much own, I think, a majority, because of that acquisition now, possibly because it might be the majority of the video games industry ever yeah. as a whole. They're big. It's a big acquisitions that we see. Um, there are companies like NetEase, for example, which have uh, stakes in Western companies. I think they own part of Activision. I think there's a, a stake in that. I might have to double check on that one quickly. Um, but yeah, they, they this is these companies that are are huge, um, and these and it, Chinese media companies that are huge. And there are games uh, like World of Warcraft, which of course had a big popular. Uh, launch had a movie that came out recently. Yeah. That movie uh, was much bigger. Uh, in release and in terms of revenue in China uh, than it was in America and Australia and everywhere else combined, basically. Speaking of movies, like a very popular game that's come out of South Korea is Dragon's ne- Dragon Nest, and that has two movies to its name. And the animation quality is actually pretty good. James and I were watching some earlier. The trailer was pretty awesome. And like it's it's very it's a kind of I mean it's not on the same level as the Overwatch animations which are polished very well but it's up there 
Mm. It's very nice. Well, I think the big thing, and, and Scott, I know you've done a little bit digging into this, um, is that we often do talk about uh, games coming from Asia as we talk about them coming from Japan. Um, and I think it's because Nintendo is such a big force, uh, sometimes yeah. a force for good, sometimes a force for bad. We'll find out a little <laughs> bit later in the show. Um, but they have a big influence in, in the Western gaming world. Um, and, you know, that people know what a Japanese game is. Yeah. I guess uh, Japanese... I for us Westerners anyway, I think Japanese games touch on Western culture a lot more than Chinese games, I think is, is the main kind of point there. Um, but on a standalone kind of, you know, uh, especially if we're looking at revenues, China outweighs Japan. Uh, it has done for years now. I think even back to 2014, it was, uh, I mean, top three, of, of course, China, Japan and USA, but China's, I think, 18 billion revenue in 2014 with a projected growth of like, you know, ridiculous amounts. They're supposed to be the top dog by 2018, basically. Which is not that far away. Another, interestingly, uh, not not of Asian kind of uh, persuasion, uh, but Brazil is also another kind of uh, development uh, or gaming revenue market that's on the rise. By 2018, they're supposed to be breaching into the top eight, which Australia is nowhere near. Well, it- not nowhere near, but they're not they're not in it. Well, I mean, there's only twenty three and a bit million people no. here versus that's probably that many people in in one city in some other parts of but the by, world. By 2018, China's uh, game revenue market is supposed to be up to 32.8 billion compared to US, which is projected to be 24. It's interesting so because... So they're like not just beating them, but smashing them. And because of the way that, you know, uh, internet and uh, telecommuting and working from all parts of the world and, and contracting with other parts of the, the world, you know, there are games that are made everywhere. The places that are games that are made in India for example or they might be made in Singapore or they might be made in China or Not Korea only are they made or again in, Korea yeah, yeah who are the fourth biggest revenue bringers of of, of this uh, kind of thing but they ma- one game can be made in different areas of the world just inclusively like um last week when we spoke to the creators of um, Wanda Wanda mm. yeah and um their development team their actual mechanics developer is the gameplay developer is in Burma mm. and the art director is here in Perth Originally from, uh, originally from, Burma. originally from Burma. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. I think this is something that is going to become more of a, a, a news story for uh, the, I guess, the Western gaming market as these Chinese companies become more involved in the globalized gaming industry. I mean, the, uh, we'll, eight eight point six billion dollars. They're involved. That's pretty involved. Yeah, eight point six involved. is involved. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I will just say, um, I mean, for the re- there's reasons given for the Chinese games not kind of breaching into the Western market. And it's mostly, from what I understand and from what I read, is down to localization, mm-hmm. which I kind of do understand and agree with on a certain base. But I don't think it's any kind of a reason to, uh, you know, discount it to not bring games in uh, Chinese successful games into the Western world. You know, like, and uh, I think if for people who talk about it and understand and want to learn about games, talking about other markets which you know maybe they're not the language that you speak but they are still very important <clears throat> but see like language is an obvious one that you ha- you're going to have to rectify to for people to actually understand it but like they're talking about changing art style you know game world background uh game pacing monetize monetization strategies like just leave it like yeah. change it so it makes sense for westerners and then see how it goes yeah uh, there's if- no yeah. i don't see i mean we're all people you know yeah exactly right all right let's jump into our next topic You're listening to Pixelsift, or you might be watching Pixelsift on Twitch. Pixelsift. Mashup and remix culture is a big part of the internet, and imitation 
is often the path to innovation. Our guests this week have a tale to tell about what inspires people to copy the work of others, then building on that legacy, and what happens when those original creators find out. No Mario Sky was a mashup game combining the procedurally generated world of No Man's Sky with the classic platformer Mario. My name is Sam Itzo. Um, I've been working in the games industry in Melbourne for about 11 and a half years. I worked at Blue Tongue uh, from 2005 until we were shut down by THQ, who owned us. And while there, I worked on um, Barnyard, which was a kid's game based on a movie, and then to Blob 1, to Blob 2, um, also Homefront. Um, then we got shut down and I sort of just decided I was going to do contract work and not go full time for anyone. So I did a bunch of web dev contract work and then I took a position at Tantalus for a year working on the uh, Deus Ex Wii U port. Yeah, mix mixture of things. And also the thing that connects it all to No Mario Sky was I, uh, I've just actually just finished up uh, contracting for Ben Porter, who's making um, Moon Man, which is like a sort of procedurally generated kind of Terraria, Minecrafty kind of game. Sort of when Ludum Dare Game Jam was, was sort of coming up, we'd sort of been talking about maybe just doing something for fun, just to sort of take a break from Moon Man, I guess. So Ben sort of organised for me and his artist, Alex McDonald, who's doing the art for Moon Man, and another guy, another programmer, uh, Max Cahill, um, got he got us all together and um, we sort of had a meeting and and decided yeah we're going to do this kind of mashup this is kind of sounds like it could be a fun idea um, and it kind of just went from there and happened like that I guess so what kind of pushed you in the direction of making uh, this mashup you me- mentioned that it was kind of a short sort of project to work on uh, after working on Moon Man um, what what kind of inspired you to make the game the way that it is. I guess, um, I mean, really, it was it was Ben's idea and Ben and Alex's idea, but really, it was just that um, No Man's Sky had been so popular, and um, and we were we knew we were going to do something with procedural generation because Ben has been doing procedural generation for years and years and years. It was like his PhD at uni and all this sort of stuff. And we all love Mario. We're all, you know, we're all gamers through and through. So it just kind of it just seemed right. Cam Rogers is a lawyer based in Melbourne who specialises in legal issues surrounding video games and tech, including intellectual property law. While the takedown request that No Mario Sky received is a no-brainer, even for those who are untrained in the intricacies of IP law, some situations are not so cut and dry. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a notoriously kind of complex area of law and it's not just in video games I mean this sort of crops up in any of the creative industries and in film and TV and anywhere where work can kind of be reused um, the important thing to remember is that the Copyright Act both in Australia and the USA or indeed anywhere for that matter that's a signatory to the Berne um, Convention Treaty that the idea is that there's no kind of protection over styles or techniques. So this is why you see loads of games on the App Store, for example, that kind of look pretty much exactly like the other another game that's come before it. Um, you know, you see one successful game, one of the titles that I worked on, for example, Crossy Road. I mean, the number of clones that's come out off the back of that 
has been incredible, but they're not infringing the game because they haven't actually copied anything. They're just sort of utilizing a similar style or technique. So you've got to be very careful uh, about what you do as a developer and the level of copying that you're undertaking. Certainly if you, uh, any kind of actual copying, so you know, manipulation of code or adaptation of code or feeding it to a compiler or something along those lines would be, a, would be fundamentally a breach of the Copyright Act. But also when you get an artwork and you kind of closely copy it, uh, that too can be construed as, as an infringement of copyright, which is pretty much what happened in uh, No Mario Sky. Is that sort of the way that it generally plays out? The a developer will go and create something, uh, the copyright owner will send through a, a DMCA takedown, a Digital Millennium Copyright Act takedown, and then that'll be it. Is there any other sort of follow-up uh, steps if the developer kind of complies with that takedown notice? Well, I mean, what you can do if you receive one of those notices and you uh, don't believe that you have copied anything or that the copyright is vested in yourself is that you can you can uh, challenge it and once your the challenge has been received then you're allowed to keep it up there but by doing so it also opens you up to being sued so basically when the notice that nintendo issued was pretty much putting you on notice saying take this down if you don't take it down then we're going to you'll be opening yourself up to being sued um, so, you know, and there's other factors that come into play here as well. I mean, you've got to look at it in terms of a David versus Goliath situation. You've got a couple of guys that created a, a game in under 72 hours of the game jam on one side, and then you've got Nintendo with all its um, strength and might and fury on the other side, uh, you know, a notoriously litigious company telling you to take something down. Um, you know, what, what, quite aside from the legal issues, they could make your, your life quite complicated. So there's a there's the practical component there too. To challenge something like that would quickly become expensive, and there's always the danger that you're going to get drowned in paperwork by Nintendo if you if you push it too hard. What is it that? Uh, well, I guess what are some of the common pitfalls that you see, sort of early uh, or even established indie developers kind of run into when they're making their games and and, and selling their games? Well, I think. Um, if you take it a step back, I think that one of the issues that you get is that people kind of, they develop too quickly and don't think of some of the key building blocks as they go along. So what I mean by that is that intellectual property as a concept kind of gets left behind and a game can get physically made and sometimes even start to be distributed before people start thinking about the rights that underpin that. So intellectual property and IP and copyright is one of those things you need to have 100% of it. It's no good owning 99% copyright and 1% is owned by somebody else because you'll need to have the owner of that 1% on board before you start making any kind of decisions. And that can be problematic later on, particularly when you start looking at secondary exploitation of the IP and wanting to license out rights, for example, and no one can actually point the finger at who or what actually owns those rights. Have you seen any situations where you know, this is kind of blown up in, in people's faces. Yeah, I mean, you, you do see it quite often. Um, you, in, particularly with students that sort of come out um, wide-eyed and there might be one student that's part of the group that decides to walk. And yeah, I've seen some great ideas, unfortunately, just never see the light of day because of disputes over who owns the copyright. And it's that's what I was sort of alluding to before. 
The problem with an intellectual property dispute is that it's fatal. There is no way to resolve it. If somebody says, well, I'm just fundamentally not giving you those rights that you need, then there's nothing really that can be done. The project is dead in the water. So you need to be careful about managing those rights and uh, making sure that everybody's on the same page from the very beginning. One thing Sam and his team were on the same page about was the expectation that their Game Jam mashup would eventually catch the eye of Nintendo and that they would need to take it down. Instead of being worried, though, about the legal team at Nintendo turning their eyes towards No Mario Sky, Sam had a different reaction. Uh, I mean, it was exciting because it's never happened before to me and none of the other guys either. So it was kind of, it was kind of fun in a way. Like we didn't, like I know a lot of these fan games are, they they put so much work into them, like years and years of work, and it feels like you should don't do that. Like it seems crazy to put all that effort into it into something that is a hundred percent sure Nintendo was going to make you take it down. So. So we made this and we knew it was probably going to get a takedown and we were sort of crossing our fingers and hoping that it didn't, but it did happen. So we were totally expecting it. Like on our Slack channel, we're like, oh, it could happen any day. So we actually, we did start preparing assets. Like Alex, the artist, started doing um, replacement assets. And so we kind of had a lot ready to, to when we got the, no- the notice, we were just sort of like ready to kind of go with a whole new game, essentially. (laughs) You can't use Nintendo stuff without them going after you, basically. Very wise words there from Sam Itso. Thanks. Uh, You can download the copy of their game. Uh, It's called DMCA Sky now. Uh, It was rebuilt from what their Game Jam original version was. That is at asmb.itch. Io. Thanks to Cam Rogers as well for joining us and giving us some legal directions and advice. Not advice. Don't, might need you don't, take legal, don't take legal advice from a podcast. <laughs> Actually talk to a lawyer if you, if you need that. You're listening to Pixel Sift. So we all read reviews from time to time, whether we prescribed to them or not is really unimportant. Just the fact that they are there uh, if we need them is. Uh, reviews stand to shed light on the unknown, which is especially nice when we have to start talk, uh, forking out some cash. I personally don't care for reviews. That's one of the reasons why we try to steer clear of such behaviours here on Pixel Sift. Uh, our last topic for today will be looking at the recent changes to review policies on Steam. Now, this has all come about from a recent controversy surrounding uh, developer Digital Homicide, which is uh, the brainchild of brothers James and Robert Romine? Romine? I don't know. I don't think they listen. Um, <laughs> Come and, and correct us, brothers. If you can, <laughs> James yeah, and Robert, get us on the line. Yeah, let us but know like, how you say your names. Uh, but also, please don't sue us. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, they started... We might need Cam in yeah. a second. They, yeah, we'll re- give Cam a call back. Um, they launched a couple of games, an RPG called Forsaken Uprising. Uh, the second game was The Slaughtering Grounds, which is a zombie thing. Um Basically, they started to get some really bad reviews uh, and they began banning and silencing critics. Um, and then there was one critic, Jim Sterling, who basically had quite a strong review of theirs that they didn't like and they saw about uh, suing him. Jim and Sterling is uh, pretty pretty well known. Pretty well known. He um, has a huge following. I yeah. don't have the stat on me. I wish I did. Um, and yeah, he's kind of... It seems to be this thing because he's this new media sort of perception that anyone can be... 
taken down at any point. You know, yeah. you can just need to be. I, I, well, I'm just a bloke on the internet or whatever. I mean, especially and, in Australia, we don't have freedom of free speech, yeah. especially for journalists. So you know, you can't get away with anything. But the problem here is they're trying to so basically well, for defi- well, yeah, it's remember, a whole. You have to remember, Scott, that the truth is a defence. Yeah. Well, that, uh, that, that, so if you're telling the truth and the game isn't great in your opinion and you believe it to be true, then. This is the problem here. They're trying to get sued for defamation, which, you know, if it's opinion and your game is kind of crap, then, you know, they don't really have a leg to stand so, on. The interesting but, thing... Okay, of- sorry. The, the actual story here is yep. basically it's gone bigger than this now and the brothers are now suing 100 users of Steam, <laughs> like collectively, for $18 million I- uh, for the heinous crime of leaving bad reviews on their games I- I- and saying bad things about the company. The court document. I actually have it here. Yes. <laughs> please, it's, please it's tell us. really good. The defendants, John Doe's, 1 through 100. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what it says. Oh, no, yeah. but, but as part of the subpoena yeah. granted uh, by some Arizona judge, not mm-hmm. important, um, they're allowed to demand the personal uh, identification and associated data of the anon- anonymous Steam users from Valve. Like now that they have, they've been, because they're trying to take this seriously. Well, they have a right to demand. Valve has no obligation to give it to them, right? I mean- but they, I mean, they have a subpoena. So, I mean, I don't know law too much, but yeah. it feels like so far the law is on their side by at least challenging um, what's been said and, and I don't know. I think it'd be interesting to see whether there's a precedent in if, uh, you know, people can request that sort of information. Usually what happens well, with these things is there's like stacks and stacks of appeals and it gets kicked up the uh, the chain until eventually it gets to the Supreme Court or something like that. But usually by that point, it costs a fortune. So most people go, Well, basically the brothers already, because they tried to um, sue Sterling for $10 million. Yep. That didn't get put through because they couldn't afford it. Yep. So it's still just sitting there in like, you know... Uh, I pointless guess, land? Yeah, pointless land. Um, and so I don't know how they're going to fund this $18 million one. But anyway, uh, Valve's deleted them from uh, Steam. They don't longer <laughs> exist. Just... Or your games still exist in your library. I, I, this, I don't completely understand that side of things, but they've been deleted. Um, and Valve changed their rules because of this. I mean, there's an, an issue here in regards to protecting developers from and this is something that the brothers kind of tried to come out and say very recently i think yesterday um it's protecting developers from hostile communities uh, but people need to be able to freely express their opinions um of games via reviews especially if they're terrible and from what like this this development company's just making crap games uh, like making there's shit also games for quick money there's also a factor as well that they have sort of segregated out the the way that people have purchased uh, games now in terms of reviews. So if you purchase the game through Steam, your review gets a certain uh, weighting to it. If you purchase the game through a another reseller and you've got a Steam key, your game gets a different, like the review gets a different weighting to it because there has been, uh, according to Valve, uh, cases where they know that people are taking the cheap bundle keys and redeeming it and just pushing up the rankings through uh through Steam reviews, creating dummy accounts. With that, though, it's they they changed it again last night. Oh, really? Uh, just to update it, because I, I think, and I'm, I'm not even going to explain it, because I feel like this whole policy is in a con- in a state of flux it's, at yep, the moment, yep. and they're going to keep amending it until they kind of get it closer to what they think is right. Um, well, there were some so, people on. who were think- basically who came out and said that if I my game has got good reviews and we've given out keys as uh, prizes or you know we have had our biggest sales through one of these bundles yeah now anyone who's bought a bundle and reviewed it and really loved the game don't have the same waiting to exactly all your good reviews are gone so yeah that, yeah that, i think this is why they're amending it because it wasn't quite right you so know, obviously is the rationale there if you pay more money you're going to give a re- more real review is that is that what 
Is that the rationale? Though? I think it's I think more difficult to have a fraudulent purchase yeah. or a, right. uh, a very cheap purpose a purchase for the purpose of doing a review. It basically it's a cost so you barrier, can, right? You can get a fleet of people to just buy it on okay. sale for like you know say a dollar. Some of them, are, yeah, less than that you can okay. buy. Yeah, so that you know seems I mean? to be the reason yeah. why yeah. They're, they're doing it. Not that because I mean Steam has sales. Um, it isn't uh, super expensive, but they just don't want people to buy. 50,000 keys. I would like to say, just to point out, um, in, in case you don't get how ridiculous this is, yeah. um, the uh, Digital Homicide Brothers wanted to sue for defama- defamation uh, based on Sterling mistaking their stolen artwork as stolen from DeviantArt when really it was from Shutterstock. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't think that's much to build a case on, but apparently the brothers do. Wow. So, but Shutterstock, I mean, Shutterstock is a stock image website, so technically they weren't stolen. Yeah, I know. So Unless I, it had the little I, watermark over I, the top of it. Okay, so that was mo- that was me ad-libbing. I, yeah. I, I don't know if Sterling used the word stolen. Right. Just if the Romain brothers are listening. There you go. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. allegedly. No, look, uh, yeah. the, uh, the, these guys, they're a huge problem on Steam, and this whole kind of uh, community of people that are just putting out shit games is an issue on Steam, because there is a lot of them there, and they're out there. And I feel like it's just, you know, smashing together mismatched bought assets yeah. and also reflipping them for each game just and, to make a quick buck. And I think there's a there's a problem with the way that reviews are weighted in terms of uh, how they, I mean, their value in terms of actually, you know, where they sit, what their game is worth is how it gets reviewed. And I don't know that that's the best way to determine it. Not my personal belief, but... Unfortunately, though, we've got uh, no more time. Whoa. We've run out of time. No man's time. Oh, no good. man's time. Or woman's. Thank you for, uh, thank you to Sam Itzo and Cam Rogers for joining us this week, having a chat to us about the game No Mario Sky. We have a website. It is www.pixelsift.com.au. On there, you will find links to the stuff we talked about in this episode today. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to be having a live episode at Perth Games Festival on Saturday the 1st of October. If you're in Perth, you can come and watch us live. Uh, we'll be on at about 11.30. If not, it will go up a week later and you can watch it all, all there. But if you're in Perth, you get, you get the get bonus. Live. Get us in the flesh. That sounds a bit not, weird. I'm not yeah. sure you want that. Yeah, yeah. anyway. Uh, <laughs> Scott, if yes. you want to check us out on social media, where are we? Uh, to get all the fleshy parts, we are on facebook.com <laughs> forward slash pixel sift. Twitter.com forward slash pixel sift, twitch.tv forward slash pixel sift, and youtube.com forward slash pixel sift au. And Mitch, you spend a lot of time every week writing up the descriptions. Yes. Uh, if people want to read some of the older ones that you've put together, the descriptions are on our website, and they can also subscribe to the show on either iTunes, Pocket Cast, or using the RSS link. Not just with descriptions, with audio as well. Yeah, with audio and video. Well. But if you want to just read, that's go ahead. That'll up be to an, you. I'll make the audio book in about your, a year from now. It's your choice. Yep. Thanks, guys. We will see you again next week. Pixel